0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL.
1: There's a pretty interesting job at YouTube, and I don't know whether it's done by humans anymore or maybe just algorithms. Not sure. But it involves, let's say, somebody taking a clip of The Simpsons or Saturday Night Live and posting it. And then YouTube has to say, wait a minute, copyright infringement, and they take it down that's why you see video unavailable sometimes. Well, that doesn't just exist for YouTube. It exists for Twitter. It exists for Facebook. And there are different reasons why things become blocked or taken down. And if you go to globalnews.ca right now, you're going to see a story that has the headline, why a story about Joe Biden, his son Hunter and Ukraine is being blocked online. It talks about what is described as an unverified story from the New York Post alleging to contain new information about Biden, his son Hunter, and Ukraine and the controversy that led to Donald Trump's impeachment. And that was put out in very limited supply at first, and then Twitter and Facebook looked at this and went, wait a minute, and in fact, Twitter went and blocked Kaylee McEnany's Twitter feed She's, of course, the White House Press Secretary. So when we're dealing with blocking and the taking down of things or the limited distribution of things, we need some help in understanding how Twitter and Facebook go to make these decisions. And that help comes to us courtesy of Professor Amy Morrison, Associate Professor of English at the University of Waterloo. Professor Morrison, how's Thursday going for you?
2: Well... Pretty good for me, probably less great for the Bidens and for the New York Post.
1: (laughs) That's just it. So we have heard all kinds of things in the past about how you get things posted on Facebook and Twitter that may not even be real. Mm -hmm. We hear stories about, and hey, this was done by Jeff Semple for Global News. He kind of went around Russia and made a podcast going to places that were creating fake news stories. He actually talked to people who were doing it. So in the the stance of Twitter and Facebook, they have all of their policies in a row. What do they consider when a story pops up and they have to decide, okay, does this go out or does this get blocked?
2: Well... I think right now, particularly in an election context, um, these social media sites are very wary of the kinds of publicity they're drawing, particularly after the controversies of the 2016 election and the revelation that was new at that time of how much what looked to be American sources of news or Facebook groups or what have you were actually controlled by troll farms, you know, paid for by Russia or in the Ukraine or what have you, um, And so there was very much a call for regulation, and there were Senate inquiries into, did this sway the election? Is it election interference? And these social media companies came under a lot of scrutiny as a result for their inaction, at the same time as they're being held to very high standards, um, particularly related to the American First Amendment about free speech, right? So they're in a rock and a hard place, and they've just gone through a sort of set of antitrust hearings with the U.S. Senate as well, asking, why shouldn't we regulate you because you don't seem to be able to take care of yourselves in front of a very highly contested election right now. So all eyes are on social media sites as much as they are on the question of fake news. And, and so what these sites are trying to do now is articulate policies that they can enact in a consistent and knowable way based on facts, right? And so this New York Post story got blocked, not because it was determined to be fake news, but because it was, showing directly images of materials that had been hacked. So private emails off this laptop where the owner of the laptop had not given consent to have these screen grabs of their emails shared. And these emails had personally identifying information. And so it wasn't necessarily the political content that got that material blocked. It was the fact that it engaged in what is referred to as doxing, right, sharing private information non-consensually about a third party through an Internet site. So that's the grounds for that one. But, of course, it's being... Um, described as political, and perhaps it is, right? But that's one of the rules now. You can't share <laughs> stolen information or personally identifiable information. Twitter didn't communicate that particularly well in its initial wave of blockings. Um, it's getting on top of that now, um, but it's very difficult to have a reasonable discussion about blocking policies in such a highly contested cultural moment.
1: No doubt. Professor Amy Morrison joining us, associate professor of English at the University of Waterloo. You mentioned rock, hard place. Yeah, that seems to be exactly where they sit. How do they even go about this? Because you think about the millions and even billions of posts, if you go you know, over a long enough span of time, that must come in. How do you possibly decide, oh, wait, there's a red flag right there?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the crux of the difficulty, right, is that a lot of these... Um, sites need to sort of be looked at (laughs) before you can decide whether they're fake news or not. And that just doesn't scale, right? It just doesn't scale to the amount of material. Um, Many times you would not be able to hire enough people to do it. Um, or enough people with the required sort of cultural literacies, because the political situation in Myanmar is different from the political situation in Ukraine, is difficult from the political situation in Canada or the U.S., right? So blockings and fake news or dangerous posts have to be identified by their context, so of course, algorithms are being developed, but also the systems have in the past very largely depended on user reports, right? So I would flag a piece of content as dangerous or fake news and then someone at Twitter or Facebook or Instagram would have to deal with it. Um, The problem with that is that that system very quickly became weaponized, (laughs) where um, bad actors would um, brigade, which is to say everybody would at the same time go and report a specific account, even if it wasn't fake news, in order to get that person taken offline while they sorted it out. It's kind of like the equivalent of swatting, you know, where they call a SWAT team uh, to an emergency at your house right? So that was like the sort of social media equivalent of swatting is people would get their accounts blocked because a bunch of people decided maliciously to report their content, right? So user reports weren't really working either. Um, So the automated accounts now tend to um, look for particular kinds of flags. They begin to identify sites um, that continually seem to be getting flagged ISPs, right? So uh, specific geographic locations tied to specific computers or servers. Um, some accounts entirely will get banned after um, a certain number of infractions. Um, now, Twitter, if you can try to retweet a news story without clicking on the link to read the news story first, you'll get a little pop up from uh, Twitter that says the headline doesn't always tell the whole story. Maybe you should read this before you share it. Right. Because one of the biggest engines. Really? Is- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was in a, uh, I was interviewed for another news story the other day, and, and it popped up on my feed. I was like, oh, yeah, that's the one I interviewed for, and I went to share it. And they're like, you should read it first. And I was like, hey, <laughs> all right, I can do you one better than that. Um, but, yeah, I get that warning all the time now. I, I've been checking to see if it still works. And, of course, it's meant um, to slow you down because one of the biggest engines of misinformation is people sharing material, right? So some of this fake news Um, or misinformation tends to be the most engaging. It appeals to our negative emotions of fear or outrage. um, And when we activate those emotions in ourselves, our rational thinking goes right out the window and we just click share, 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 um, without really um, engaging with the content in a meaningful way first or applying a, does this make sense filter? And that's Probably the biggest danger is is user practice in sharing and resharing. And that was why the press secretary got put in the timeout box, right? Because she kept resharing this one article um, that was determined to be not shareable currently. And she just was doing it several times in a row, and they just put her in the timeout box. (laughs) So she will be able to come back, but she will not be able to share that link again.
1: How long do those timeout boxes last? It really depends.
2: Sometimes you can talk your way out of them, but you have to... Um, engage with a human at customer service, right? They'll send you this report that you know you've been blocked or your account has been um, temporarily suspended, and then you have to go through a series of steps, either like to prove you are who you say you are, that it's not a fake account. Like it depends on on what you got reported for or algorithmically flagged for. I expect her timeout ban will be shorter than many people's because she is a well-known public figure, um, and customer service tends to get on top of those cases a little bit more quickly than they do an average person who may have got blocked for a ridiculous reason. There was a, an ad that had pictures of onions in it that got blocked for obscene material the other day. Right. because The algorithm thought that the onions were breasts, right? Um, and that took a little bit of time for that company to sort out because some algorithm and some machine thought it was posting porn when it was posting onions, right? So it really depends on who you are and how much attention your blocking gets.
1: All we want people to do is know about our onions. That's right. Well, they sure do
2: now, yeah.
1: What an absolutely wild world we live in. A lot of what Twitter and Facebook deal with would be almost invisible enemies Mm -hmm. and having to change algorithms and come up with new things? Boy, didn't we all sit back at one point and say, hey, that Facebook thing, I could have come up with that. Man, why didn't I come up with that? I don't know if we want the world's current baggage that it comes with right now, even with all the millions and billions that it's worth.
2: No, Mark Zuckerberg does not look very happy in the pictures you tend to see of him online right now. No, I think think all of these CEOs and social media companies are really going through a reckoning right now about how to maybe put the genie a little bit back in the bottle. Because honestly, this this is a problem of their own creating. All of their um, algorithms are designed to make the most engaging content the most visible. And engagement is usually measured in number of clicks or number of shares or number of retweets. Um, and the research is increasingly showing that it's our negative emotions, once activated, that produce the most sort of engagement in these ways. So. It does keep people on the websites, and it does have them sharing all kinds of content. And the more you share, the more ads you get served, the more money these companies are making, right? So in some ways, they created a system that produces um, an incentive to create outrage um, and spectacle um, and to have people not be reasonable and to sort of gin up um, very strong emotions in people um, that produce fighting Amongst them, because that's what keeps people on these websites and that's what makes a profit for them. Yeah.
1: Wow. Professor Morrison, we always learn so much when you are here. Thank you so much for this and please keep safe.
2: It's been a delight.
1: We'll talk soon. Bye bye. That's Professor Amy Morrison, Associate Professor of English at the University of Waterloo. And yeah, you want to make content that is engaging, you want to make content that gets shared, that people see, and that all makes sense. And then people get involved. And then you use that for a tool in some cases, which we have seen. And now, as Professor Morrison said, you're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. It's too late. You're trying to put the horse back in the stable. It's too late. It doesn't work like that because it's already out there. So you're left to try and restrict what is posted, but it's like putting up that Simpsons video. Do a test. You know, you may get your your Gmail account suspended for a little bit. I don't think you would on a first offense, but if you have a Gmail account, you can even create one. Think about how crazy our world is. You could create a fake Gmail account, use it to log into YouTube, and then post a Simpsons video and count how long before somebody notices it and takes it down. Post anything with copyright. And see how long it is before that's taken down. That's the job of so many of these social media outlets right now. You have to vet. Whew. Weird. There are so many things throughout the year that we can look to and say, yes. Or that we can look forward to going, it's almost here. Thanksgiving's normally one of those things. It just went by. Did you see it go by? It was kind of quiet. It was, it was kind of like every other day if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing because you were hanging out with the people you've been hanging out with because that's what we're supposed to do. So we need to find things that we can celebrate. We need to find things that inspire us, and we need to share in as many of those things that we can. And, well, guess what? Pillar Nonprofit Network is going to help us out because they are all about sharing, inspiring, and celebrating, and the Pillar Community Innovation Awards are coming up on November the 19th, and joining us right now is the Executive Director of Pillar Nonprofit, Michelle Baldwin. Michelle, how are you?
0: I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me on today.
1: We can hear you smile. So that's thank you for coming on with a smile. We need some more smiles on a day when we've got almost 800 cases and the word restrictions coming up and all those sorts of things. It is good to know that we still have reasons to inspire and celebrate in this community. Now we've got to ask this question. Normally this is, this is a gala event. This is a phenomenal event. How do things change for 2020?
0: Well, first, uh, the name of the event has innovation in it. So we know that uh, as we move to a virtual event, there are ways that we can make this really exciting where we can still have networking, live chatting, uh, and most importantly, endless inspiration. So we're moving to a virtual event. We'll have arts throughout it, uh, and we'll be celebrating our finalists in the categories of uh, innovation, leadership, impact, and collaboration. So if people want to feel that collective action that is happening in a moment like this even during a really tough moment like this this is the event to come to on november 19th
1: love that okay that is good i mean the feeling and and the ability to look and see what goes on in this community that maybe doesn't necessarily get noticed as much as it needs to this this is phenomenal it's that kind of thing that we need so november 19th um, what do we need to know about timing for that night and, and how we get involved?
0: Well, right now we have a really cool opportunity. We have the Forest City Film Festival coming up uh, in the next few weeks. And so we have an early bird draw that if people get their tickets for uh, the awards before October 23rd, they'll be entered into a draw called The Show Must Go On. And that name was really deliberate because we know that, um, you know, the Pillar Community Innovation Awards, we felt like it needed to still happen, uh, as you said, to kind of uncover what is behind the curtain of London that's happening that people just may not know. And to also inspire people to think, what can I be doing? Because right now, people are sitting um, thinking, what can I do to make a difference? And so this will give some ideas of all sorts of different stories that will really lift people's hearts and minds.
1: So you're still able to tell all the stories?
0: Yes, we have 12 finalists, um, and our event this year is from 6 till 9 p.m. Uh, we have a DJ, we have, you know, all sorts of ways that we'll make sure that it's uh, it's fun. But we will also make sure that we're telling really good stories about each of those finalists so that uh, they're recognized for their contributions, they're celebrated, uh, and that we bring community together in a new way uh, online.
1: Well, you can go to pillarnonprofit.ca. Or you can certainly go to eventbrite.ca and search Pillar Nonprofit and you can find a way to get tickets at both of those spots. And like you say, Michelle, we're talking with Michelle Baldwin, the Executive Director of Pillar Nonprofit Network, about the Pillar Community Innovation Awards. Mark it down, November nineteenth, and we've got stories from twelve different individuals. How do those individuals or you know, how do those twelve nominees get nominated?
0: I'm so glad you asked. So we start a nomination process um, early in the year and uh, people uh, share in their nominations. And then we have a selections committee that meets over the summer who's independent from Pillar. uh, And uh, they bring forward their 12 finalists and they've also selected the four award recipients for the night that will be announced on November 19th. And if you're wondering how you can also have a a voice in this, we have a community choice award. So if they go to Pillar nonprofit, check out who the finalists are you can actually vote for who would be recognized with the community choice award
1: okay and how do we do that
0: so right on our website it says um if you go to pillar nonprofit.ca you'll find the pillar community innovation awards and it says vote community choice and so they can go right up to our website to do that and um you know, they'll see a, a nice overview about each of the fine lists and see which one or you may know one of them already and you're following along and you're like, oh, I really want to make sure that this one is recognized in this way.
1: Well, it is 12 inspiring stories, and it's hard to believe you can pack them into one night. We need inspiring stories, and, Michelle, we really appreciate you being able to bring those to us. So November the 19th, you're going to PillarNonprofit.ca, or you can go to Eventbrite.ca and search Pillar Nonprofit. Get your tickets and take part between 6 and 9. Michelle, I know we'll be talking again. Thank you for all the information today.
0: Thank you for supporting our biggest night of storytelling and having me on today.
1: And thank you for continuing it, even in the midst of this pandemic. Innovation, yeah, you guys have it. So, well done.
0: Thank you, Mike.
1: That is Michelle Baldwin from Pillar Nonprofit Network. She is the executive director. Just got news of something that you might want to check out at globalnews.ca. We have recorded the first death from COVID-19 in Middlesex, London, since mid-June. Nine new cases today, but the first death since mid-June. So we're going to hear more about that just after 2 o'clock. We will have an update from the Middlesex London Health Unit and the City of London at 2 o'clock. We will carry that live on 980 CFPL. So that is coming, but that's the news that was just released two minutes ago. On the 980 CFPL website. So go to globalnews.ca or to 980cfpl.ca. In life, you're going to have challenges. It is guaranteed. It's kind of what life is about, which leaves us wondering, why is it that we're always being tested in this way? Couldn't life just be a Ferris wheel? And we just kind of go round and round, and eventually we get off, and I don't know. Do we go somewhere else? I don't know. But we're always given these challenges. It's kind of like being on that Ferris wheel, and all of a sudden a bolt falls out, and you think, oh, well, that can't be good. What do I do now? And immediately you want to make whatever change you need. You want to get whatever fix there is in order to get back to just kind of going round and round. Well... That's something that we need to talk about right now, because there is a real issue in funding for early intervention services for very young humans who may have hearing issues. And if you have hearing issues, boy, do we have technology it is remarkable to see the things that have been created. So you want to be able to get help. You want to be able to access whatever it is that can help your child, right? Makes perfect sense. Well, joining us right now to talk about some of the challenges that exist, maybe why those exist, is Bronwyn Allslap, who is going to talk to us about the Here Early campaign. Bronwyn, thanks so much for being here.
3: Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome to join. Ron,
1: let's kind of break this down and and determine what is happening here that needs to be addressed. What do we have going on?
3: Unfortunately, since the pandemic happened, um, we were very grateful in the beginning that the infant hearing program had chosen to give us the option to have Zoom sessions with our children for therapy. Uh, but then now since schools have opened and summer when our numbers are lowest, uh, we unfortunately did not see that the infant hearing program was utilizing that time where we could reopen our services for our children to be again with our auditory, verbal therapists, and speech language pathologists in person, face-to-face, to make sure the children are getting the best sound quality of their sessions and to thrive and have success in early intervention. And the problem is I think there's a lack of awareness from a ministry level that this is happening, how every single different city is operating differently. I also believe that uh, there's lack of funding for getting the appropriate PPE necessary for the professionals Uh, the speech language uh, college has opened doors to resume services for anyone who belongs to the college so this is strictly something that the infant hearing program has decided selectively per city to decide whether they want to resume services in person or not so it's really not the college here this is something that lies in infant hearing program and the minister needs to be aware if it's a funding issue that our children are suffering If you have hearing loss, it is very, very hard to do sessions weekly on Zoom, especially if you can't hear properly. Even myself, who has normal hearing, I struggle on Zoom to hear. Screens can freeze. It does not work long term. And we need to address this because our children are going to suffer and they're going to be severely delayed in their language and development skills when they're already born delayed with having hearing loss. So we're very concerned that early intervention is not being looked at as an essential service.
1: And it's not like we're talking about 16-year-olds here. This is an infant hearing program. It's not like you can say, oh, guess what? Today we're going to be on Zoom. Uh, You're going to be looking at this computer and you're going to be listening to what's being said on the computer. As far as infants go, that suggests young babies. How young are we talking?
3: Babies will, children, as soon as they're born, thankfully in Ontario, they are screened uh, to see if they do have hearing loss issues. And if there is, if they fail their hearing screening test, so they are referred to get early intervention as soon as possible. So they are then connected, uh, depending on their level of hearing loss with services such as therapy. So normally children uh, could be already starting at uh, three months to have hearing aids. And that's how early we're lucky to get early intervention going. And after that, once you get the hearing aids, that's not—it's not like you walk away and then you can hear for life. You need to have intense training through auditory-verbal therapy and speech-language pathologists to work on getting those listening skills happening to make up for all that time that you were not hearing within the the womb when you were being carried. So there's all that lost time. So when you're born with the hearing loss, you're actually, your hearing isn't really documented to start until you get access to sounds through technology. And many kids don't even, they have to wait for surgery. They can't just automatically get hearing aids. They have to get other sources like cochlear implants. That could be a year-long waiting list without getting any surgery. And then you're without proper therapy throughout the whole time. There's many areas that I think, unfortunately, people aren't aware of when it comes to early intervention until they're thrown into it like parents, like ourselves. So when we're watching what's happening in the system that is so important for our children and for other friends of ours, it's very, very frustrating. And as an organization, Voice for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Children really want to make this very well, widely known that we need to support our children and they need to have the funding to make it safe for their services to resume in person.
1: Bronwyn Oslop joining us as we talk about the Hear Early campaign. And, boy, Bronwyn, there are so many things that we do not have, let's say, technology for, things that can assist, and and we're still trying to make those things. In the world of hearing, would you say that that we do have so many things available and it's just a matter of of getting those things to who needs them? That's got to be frustrating.
3: Unfortunately, it's not even the technology. It, the technology is, is definitely a huge aspect. You need the technology, but thankfully right now um, you can get access to having your hearing aids updated. You can have access, but the problem is you need to have the, the therapy after to to function. If you're even a senior and you're implanted and you've had maybe very mild or moderate hearing loss your whole life and then you have a cochlear implant you yourself in your 60s have to go through intense therapy after because you don't have hearing anymore your entire source of hearing is taken out of your brain and you need a therapist who has that certificate in auditory verbal therapy to train your brain to listen again so it it, there's technology is a big part of this but that's also the myth that unfortunately medical professionals have as well is that implant or give the technology you walk away and the child doesn't need consistent therapy or the adult after that is a huge issue that needs to be addressed you need to have the auditory verbal therapy consistently after you get implanted or you get the technology to make sure you can hear properly and then you can then use your language after
1: Bronwyn when we look at where this needs to go obviously so many things have been affected by the pandemic this is definitely one of those things what does need to happen who needs to act
3: uh, todd smith minister todd smith i want to really truly know if he's even aware of what's happening with this i'm having a very dark feeling that This hasn't been brought to his attention that every different city across Ontario under his responsibility is acting differently. So, for example, Toronto Public Health Infant Hearing Program is still doing services uh on Zoom, whereas Mississauga, I have learned uh Aaron Oak is now doing uh the option to also do in person. Um and the reason that is is because uh the infant hearing program is uh similar to limb care for seniors where it is very similar where they have numerous different services that are broken up in order to provide the services. It's not under all one umbrella across Ontario to work properly and efficiently. So that is the key here that the minister also needs to be aware of, that the funding, having this service is excellent, but you need to have consistency across Ontario and to stop having so many different locations and agencies and contracts to run the system. Because in a pandemic like care with all of those seniors sadly being affected by COVID because they had too many people going in and out of seniors' homes daily, That is what's happening here in the infant hearing program where things are not running efficiently because it's the same equivalent except it's children. So we need to address this across the board that this broken system needs to be fixed. And the only thing I can say is thankfully with the pandemic, I think it's waking people up to what is happening with Care for Seniors, but it's also going to be waking up the minister and other areas how this needs to change and all function properly under one umbrella properly funded.
1: Well, things like this need a voice and you have certainly given it that voice. It's in the name. Bronwyn, thank you so much for your thank time you so and describing this. I really this.
3: appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. That is Bronwyn
1: Allslap from Voice for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Children as we talk about something that that again, along with certain surgeries, you know, I could I shouldn't even start listing because the list is so long the things that would normally be able to be addressed if we were not inundated by so much to do with this pandemic. But at the same time, those things cannot be ignored. And when you're talking about children having the opportunity to get the form of technology that can help them to hear so that they can continue their own development in things like speech and learning – that's, that's key. And if days go by where that doesn't happen, you can't just rewind. We don't live in a PVR. You can't run it back and say, oh, okay, well, just a second. We missed that. We'll just go back six weeks and use those six weeks again. Life's not a PVR. So here's hoping that we do see something that can assist in that way so that you don't have Zoom calls, so that you can have this happening in person. It's a big challenge, but it's one that was outlined by Bronwyn just now. You've
0: been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.